Hi, this is David Olowski, and welcome to the Rabbi Olowski Show. And whether you're watching with our friends over at Tony Time, or whoever you watch or listen to your podcast, as always, thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day, week, hour, uh, However it, it goes, because I know every now and then somebody just stumbles onto this and binge watches. This is show 181. And uh, if you do that, then really, really, you need to go to a detox center afterwards. There's only so much of this you can handle. <laughs> and uh, as always, we would like to thank our anonymous sponsor who is sponsoring as a schuss for himself and for his family. And may they have only uh, uh, health and as Art Raymond in the uh, Art Raymond Simcha on WEVD used to say, yeah, health, wealth, and the time to enjoy it. So, alle gute Sachen. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's Elul. Oh, my gosh, Elul. We are preparing ourselves for Rosh Hashanah. And then we go into the Aserah Smei and then we go into Yom Kippur. Uberai shashanai kasehevun Ubiyam saim kippur yechasehemun I should put you in the mood. Yeah? What a, what a mood killer that one is, eh? <laughs> yeah? Reflecting on the uh, days of awe, don't... Uh, don't really uh, get people to. It removes Kalas Reich. That's exactly what we're talking about to, to be able to take things more seriously. Um, and uh, I want to I want to address, if I can, one aspect of the Yemei Hadin that I think is very important. Uh, I've been asked this question over the years by different people. Hashem will forgive me, right? I mean, even if I don't do tshuva and I keep doing Averis, Hashem will forgive me, right? They don't realize that they are basically uh, repeating the statement from the German philosopher Goethe, who on his deathbed was crying, uh, his wife was crying, and he said, don't worry, God will forgive me, that's what he does. And that's what they were asking. God will forgive me anyway, right? Even if I don't do anything, right? And I said, yes, as long as you can convince God that you're a baby and you're not capable of anything. Yeah. Because the two-year-old got into the kitchen, pulled the stuff out of the cabinets, somehow managed to pull down, you know, the stuff from the counter. And uh, there's a big mess all over the kitchen and he's sitting there. He's covered in mess and the whole kitchen's a mess. What are you going to do? Say, all right, young man. I expect you to clean up this mess and then you're going to go into your room and have a little time to think about what you did. And then I expect you to tell me why what you did was wrong. And the kid goes, go, 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 do, go, go, da, go, do, go, do, yeah. So obviously this is a worthless uh, adventure <laughs> that we're embarking on. So instead, like all parents, you'll sigh and pick him up and take off uh, all his dirty clothes and put him in the bath and clean him up as he points out, do, God, do, God, do, God, do. He says, yeah, I know, you know, and you'll brush out his hair and put, uh, put, uh, clean pajamas on him, put him down for a nap, and you'll go in and clean up the mess. I have no expectations of that person because they're not capable. Not capable. If you find yourself in a relationship where the other person really has no expectations of you because they basically feel you're not really capable of much. <laughs> and so when a person says, I can't handle this and I can't do this and can't you take care of this for me and why do I have that? And you say, yes, of course, I'll handle this, right? you are basically acknowledging the fact that you don't really have a tremendous amount of respect for this person. You don't have too much expectations. What is the person supposed to do? They're, they're not capable. The Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah says that on Rosh Hashanah, everybody in the world 
passes before Kedush Baruch Hu, Bnei Maron. And the Gemara brings three pshatim on what Bnei Maron is. It's either a reference to the um, army of David Melech who was so strong that they went single file. This is not a good idea. If you ever read the book, A Bridge Too Far, where uh, Montgomery was pushing Eisenhower to use his plan to go through Holland and uh, attack the Germans. Um, it, uh, it involved them capturing five bridges. And it was just one road. And all the tanks had to go through on that one road. And if anything happened, the whole line would get stuck. And uh, the person who was listening to the plan said, I think it's a bridge too far. Maybe four, but you're not going to get to that fifth one. And that's, in fact, what happened. It was a bridge too far. And it was a terrible defeat. It really uh, ended up that Holland was the last place to be liberated instead of the first. And it was just an absolute disaster. You just you didn't have enough room. You have to be able to spread out. That's the idea of a pincer movement. That was one of the things that Napoleon was brilliant, as he would move his armies around and circle and that's why when you're stuck, you're not going to go anywhere. World War I, everything that happened basically happened in August of uh, 1914. And then they dug a big trench, basically from the Atlantic all the way down to Switzerland. And each side entrenched. And they put up barbed wire and they put up machine gun nests. And every now and then, one side would amass an enormous amount of people and run across and they'd all be slaughtered and We'd go back and forth like this throughout the war for four years. There was no way to be able to to capture it. So you want to be able to have maneuverability and move around and go. So you just go in one straight line. you got to be pretty confident. And the army of David Melech was very confident. They were so strong that they weren't afraid. Or B'nai Maron, which is another Girsa Haron, is talking about a mountain path. And it's a very narrow mountain pass. One side, there's a mountain, and the other side is the abyss. And so you can have to walk single file along this mountain road. And it's very dangerous, because if you have a misstep, you'll fall off the side. And the third is, B'nai Maron means like sheep. Because when they would do Maise Behema, so you had to take all of the sheep that were born that year, and you put them into a pen, and you had a narrow opening so that they could only walk out one at a time. And as they walked out one at a time, you counted till you came to ten, and then you took red paint, put it on the side, and you knew that was Maise Behema. So that's how the shepherd counts his sheep, one at a time. So it says, we stand before Maron. whichever shot you take, it means one at a time. As an individual, Hakadosh Baruch Hu lifts you up out of all of mankind and says, "So, how's it going? <laughs> so, you think I should give you another year of life or not?" And we're like, "Why? Why? Why are you talking to me? <laughs> what, how did I get here?" <laughs> because you are Adam. No, Adam Harishon. Every person in this world, we have to decide whether you should exist. And we have to look at you as an individual. That's din, and din is scary. Remember hearing people who were in Rav Salavechik's shir when he used to give, you know, obviously years ago. And if he called on you, it was very. He was. He had a reputation of being rough. There was a uh, a brisker, you know. There was a uh, um, a major donor to Yeshiva University who wanted the experience, and he says, "I'd like to." He came to Rosalovich because I'd like to sit in and Yeshiva. So sure. So the guy sits down. He's got his Gemara open in front of him. So he looks at the guy. He's the first one he calls on. He goes, "Read the Ramban." He said, "I didn't prepare the Ramban." He says, "Get out." <laughs> That's how I run my share. You want to be in my share? You prepare the Maimagomas, yeah? So people used to hide behind pillars because they didn't want to be seen. They didn't want to be picked out. They didn't want to be called upon. Yeah? 
there are certain people, there's a certain style of comedy where they're going to pick on people in the audience. Certain people will sit in the front row because they want to be picked on, and other people stay way away because they don't want to become the center of attention. Yeah. And uh, I had a chavrusa when I was learning, and Kolo, this story is about 33 years old. And, uh, and I was asking him about a particular thing, and he says, no, I, I don't like to stand out. He was a chassid. I said, you're dressed in clothes from the 1700s and you don't want to stand out. It's a little too late for that. <laughs> but the, the idea of being seen as yourself. So on the one hand, it's a little scary. On the other hand, it's an amazing statement. Because if Baruch Hu is going to judge you, then he thinks you're worth being judged. Think about that. They always have a pre-trial before the trial to decide whether or not the person is competent to stand trial. And the fact that comes Rosh Hashanah, HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't just say, ah, don't worry about this guy. He's a two-year-old. You can't expect anything of him. I have no expectations of you. And I always say this. Just because you can't do everything doesn't mean you can't do anything. And there are things that you have done right this year, and you deserve to be judged and rewarded for that. So I don't know everything. Just because I don't know everything doesn't mean that I don't know anything. Someone sent me an email. It was a... Okay, for those of you who are not familiar with this, there was a TV show, I think it started in the 60s, called Jeopardy. There was a um, host, Art Fleming, and uh, it was like the smartest show. Most of these are pretty stupid shows, you know, with stupid questions. And, uh, you know, you spend most of the time just telling you about the prizes, you know. But this was a real intelligent show. And the original, you get like $10 for a question. You know, like, <laughs> it worked real hard. You weren't going to make a lot of money on this show. And you had to be pretty smart, you know. And uh, they had Jeopardy. Then they had Double Jeopardy. And then they had Final Jeopardy. One last question. And so Art uh, Fleming died, and then Alex Trebek took over, you know, and and then he died, and I think now Mir Bialik is in line to be able to take over. And um, and uh, it's it's still going, still going strong. And you got to be smart to be able to compete on this. So they have Jeopardy, and then they have Double Jeopardy, and then they have Final Jeopardy. So a guy sent me. Yeah, I like to think I'm pretty smart. When I would go visit my mother. Uh, so I tried to spend as much time with her as I could when I wasn't out speaking. So one of her great delights was to sit and watch Jeopardy. Um, I, at this point, I was a pretty well-known rabbi throughout the Jewish world. I had lectured in Australia and South Africa, throughout Europe, North America. My mother was not as impressed by that as she was by the fact that I knew most of the answers to Jeopardy. <laughs> now, okay, full disclosure, you know, it's it's not the same anymore because, um, uh, you know, when they talk about music and they're talking about music, um, my music knowledge doesn't go past the 1970s. I've never heard of any of these groups or, or songs, you know. Every now and then they have a topic, uh, opera. I have to admit I don't know too much about that, you know. But if it's the usual topics of like history and literature and things like that, I have a pretty good knowledge, you know. So I, I've, I've, I feel like I, you know, pretty, pretty well versed. Um, so he sends me 10 Final Jeopardy questions. I didn't know one. I didn't know any of them. <laughs> it was, it was a real downer. Really made me feel pretty silly because, you know, I pride myself in having knowledge of uh, of worthless information, you know, and I, I couldn't answer one question. It was really pretty amazing. And I guessed each one, which I thought I was right. And each time I was wrong. It was uh, humbling. But, uh, um, but okay. But just because I don't know that doesn't mean that I don't know anything. I know a lot of answers. You know, different questions over the years. I don't know if I still do. I, I, haven't, I haven't really tried you know, they give you the answer and then you have to provide the question. 
has to be the question for him, you know. So they used to have what they called celebrity jeopardy. They have celebrities. So this comedian, um, Robert Klein, very smart guy, you know. And I don't know what the question was. Let's pretend, you know, he was the first president of the United States. So he goes, George Washington. So it has to be in the form of a question. He goes, George Washington? <laughs> Inflection. Anyway, so, uh, so just because you don't know everything doesn't mean that you don't know anything. And you walk into Rosh Hashanah and some things you have done. And the very fact that the Kosh Baruch is judging you means that he thinks that you are worthwhile and you have a contribution to make in this world. I can't tell you how many times I've heard from, from people. I feel like a Kosh Baruch doesn't care if I live or die. Make no mistake about it. He has no shortage of ways of getting rid of you. So if you're still here, it's because he wants you here, because he believes there's something that you can do in this world. And I think, ultimately, our preparation for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur is for us to be able to go to a Kodesh Baruch Hu and say, I am part of the plan. I am an instrument in the symphony orchestra. I am a cell in the body of Klai I have something to do, and I'm going to try to fulfill that purpose. Now, this is by way of introduction. Because very often something happens and it annoys me. And uh, someone says to me, oh, that's going to be your next podcast? And I think, yeah, that's what it's going to be. <laughs> so I was someplace for Shabbos and I'm not going to give any information. Because whenever I do, it always comes back. It's amazing that there's uh, so many bright detective-like people out there that if I give even the slightest hint, and people get offended, even if I don't mean to be offensive. Now, many times I mean to be offensive, but even if I don't mean to be offended, people get offended. I have a good friend, and I told the story, and I don't remember when I told the story about something that happened with him and his wife when they first got married. You know, it's basically a story that makes, makes my friend look a little silly. And his wife, uh, you know, comes out, as very often happens in these stories, as like the more intelligent, better one. You know, I said, like, okay. I don't remember when I said this. It was, I don't remember what I say, you know. Um, he calls me up one time and he says, my wife heard that you mentioned her in a podcast. Could you please delete that podcast? So I said, which podcast was it? You know? So I don't know. I said, listen, I, I, I've, I've made a, over 180 of these, you know, to go back and search for each one of them where I told some little throwaway story. Some people love it when they get a shout out. You know? Sometimes I, I mention people who are very famous people. And they contact me afterwards and thank me for mentioning them, you know. But sometimes people, people don't appreciate being mentioned. I guess they want to stay hiding behind the pillar and they don't want to draw attention to them, whatever it is. So I certainly apologize, you know. And, um, and I do sometimes say things in, in a delicate um, manner, um, I sometimes will tell over a story, and for dramatic effect, I build it up a little bit. And if I give too many details and people figure out who the person is and they end up looking bad, well, of course, that was never my intention. I was just embellishing it for uh, for dramatic effect. But, you know, that's that has negative consequences if the person is able to identify themselves because I gave too much information. So I really try when I think about it. Um you know, to try to keep things uh, as anonymous as possible, right? Okay. So I was davening someplace, some shul. And uh, the shul uh, was not very crowded on a Friday night. But I saw there were a bunch of people sitting in these three rows in the back. And I said to the person I was with, why are they sitting back there? And he said, because when we were selling seats, they didn't want to buy a seat. 
in the shul. So this whole front section of the shul is all sold seats. So that's really the Ezra's Nashim, and we don't get women, so we move back to Mechitza, you know, and so anybody who wants can sit over there. I said, okay, but they pay dues, right? No. I said, oh, well, they only dive in here once in a while. It says they've been coming steadily for three years straight. I said, well, okay, they just come and dive in and leave. Like, they don't stay if there's a kiddish. Oh, no, they stay and eat if the kiddish do. <laughs> I thought to myself, you know there are expenses. Who's paying the expenses? They had to fix up the shul. They had to pay for electricity and air conditioning, you know, and, and, and svarim and everything that goes into running a shul. You don't want to help? Before Rosh Hashanah, there's a number of shuls that I show up to sometimes, not on a regular basis. And I always try, I don't always succeed because I do forget, but I always try to go around to all these shuls and find the Gabbai and pay shul dues for the year. I may not dive in there very often, but if I do, I feel like I should um, pay the membership. They have expenses. Why do I assume I'm going to walk in and find a minion waiting for me? With chairs and tables and bathrooms and sinks and the svarim and, you know, and everything's all set up. You have no sense of responsibility. Everything is being set up for you and you don't want to help. So unfortunately, you see this a lot. Uh, you see people who um, will go into the shul kitchen or base manager's kitchen and make themselves a cup of coffee and leave the milk out. And leave the sugar uncovered. And if a little of it spills, they leave it there. And you come in in the morning and the dirty coffee cup is on the table. They take svarim and they don't put it back. I'm not even talking about helping. Just clean up the mess that you made. But I'll be down the kaf's chus. These people think of themselves like that two-year-old kid. Like the person who said to me, Hashem will forgive me anyway, right? I don't have to do anything. Why wouldn't you want to do something? You have no sense of wanting to accomplish anything? I think everybody wants to accomplish something. I think everybody wants to be able to turn around and say, I, I did something. Even if it's not everything. But... uh Something you do. Uh, people are... I see people walk through the door of the building or wherever I am and they see me walking after them. It's another three seconds. Just hold the door. So they let it go. Let it slam right in my face. <laughs> it's not a lot. Not a lot. I really try to make an effort to hold the door when I see people coming. Yeah. I have a little concern. So we're going to go into Rosh Hashanah, and that's what Elo has to do, is we have to develop with ourselves a sense of responsibility. I am Achrai. Just because I can't do everything doesn't mean I can't do anything. I've told this story before. I think it's in Chicken Soup for the Soul. This guy's walking along a beach and he sees starfish and he's picking them up and throwing them back into the sea. So someone says, what are you doing? He says, well, they'll die if they don't get back into the sea. He says, but there are thousands of starfish. And this is happening on beaches all over the world. You can't make a difference. And he picked up one and he threw it back in and said, made a difference to him. So I can't save everybody. That doesn't mean I can't save anybody. So I can't do everything. That doesn't mean I can't do anything. And this is a very, very sad situation that there are people who just sit around and wait for other people to do it. At the end of a kiddush, some people help, put away things, clear off. Other people just sit there. Nothing. There's, 
Forget about whether or not the person needs your help or not. Don't you want to participate? Don't you want to feel a sense of achrayis? Some sense of responsibility? It doesn't make people happy when they're just takers. People want to give. It's part of our nature. And if, we're, if we make ourselves into such a nebuch that we just take and we take and we, um, and we never participate, we never help, we're going to walk into Rosh Hashanah and our best hope is that Hashem doesn't notice us when He picks us up, try to hide under the, under the little in the inside, the little hand of Hashem and say, I'm not really here. Don't look at me. I'm not here. That's sad. Well, a person could say, I can do something in this world. I'm important. Uh, there was a, a school I spoke in once, a high school. And uh, there was a family that was very poor, like mamish poor. They couldn't pay any tuition. Couldn't pay any tuition. So, okay, so the school says, you don't have to pay any tuition. And uh, and Friday they used to have like a little uh, some sort of an oneg or something like that, you know, getting ready for Shabbos. So the woman called up and said, "Could I bake potato kugels for the school? I could afford some potatoes and some onions, some eggs." And she made very good potato kugels, but she would make potato kugels for the for the high school. They would have them, and she felt good because she felt like she was doing something. I've told this story before that when my father decided to send us to Yeshiva, to the Hebrew Academy of Nassau County, he had gone bankrupt a few years earlier and money was very tight. But he made the decision to send us and give us a, a Yeshiva education. And uh, my father had to go hat in hand to the scholarship committee, committee, which was very hard for him. It was hard for him because he wanted to be a person who was carrying his weight. Anyway, Four kids in the school, and he got a good discount, you know. And eventually, the business started to turn around. So he comes into the scholarship meeting, and they say, okay, Mr. Olowski, we're prepared to offer you the following scholarship. And he said, I refuse to pay a penny more than full tuition. And the guy says, I'm sorry, Mr. Olowski, this is what we're offering you. If you're not prepared to, to pay this amount, then we're going to have to ask your kids to leave. He says, you do what you have to do, but I'm not paying any more than full tuition. He says, all right, then, I'm sorry, you'll have to find uh, make other arrangements for your children for next year. And the guy next to him says, I think he's offering you more. I was like, what? He says, I'm sorry, Mr. Olavsky, could you repeat what you just said? He says, I'm not going to pay a penny more than full tuition. He says, you're turning down the scholarship? He said, that's right. Thank God I don't need it anymore. He says, you're the first parent in the history of the school to turn down a scholarship. And Rabbi Geisman Zassal told me that over the years he made a cheshben how much scholarship he had gotten and he paid it all back to the school. Because he felt a sense of achrayis. He felt a sense of responsibility. There was a boy I knew in NCSY and he wanted his father to send him to yeshiva. Same yeshiva that I went to. And he said, listen, could you help me out? Can you get me a scholarship? I said, well, just go to the scholarship committee. Why should it be a problem? He goes, well, when they see my income, they're probably not going to give me one. I said, really? He says, yeah, and, and I'm building a vacation home right now, etc. So I don't know that they'll be so you know, receptive. But you know, I have to also think about cash flow. I thought to myself, these teachers make nothing. I mean, really ridiculous amount of money. And they were months behind in their salaries. And you're worried about your cash flow. You know? So we have to be in this world with a sense of responsibility, with a sense of achrayas. I owe something to this world. I have to give to the world just like I take. And if we come in with that sense of achrayas, and we come in Rosh Hashanah and we say, Kodesh Baruch Hu, I'm your guy or gal, you can count on me. I'm not perfect. 
but I'm on your team. And whatever I can do, I'm going to try to do to help spread you, and Torah, and Yadus, and the world the way that it should be. As always, uh, the Kichels, one of the most brilliant social commentaries that exists in the firm world. And they had this picture of these girls in camp. And they're on a bus. On a bus. And they're spilling things and this and the, and the bus driver keeps keeps uh, yelling at them, sit down, you know, stop doing that, you know, the, the whole ride. And they're screaming, they get, they don't care. And then they get off and they all say, thank you, thank you, thank you very much. And they get off and they say, you see, we all said thank you. What a kiddush Hashem. <laughs> yeah, not too much. <laughs> and so that's why every one of us has to be able to make their own contributions. Oh, I, I do, in my own small way, what I can. I don't know, people are wondering, you know, you spoke last week about Benazmanim and about Chofesh and people doing things. What did you do during the break that was particularly meaningful for Klai Yisrael? And not just for Klai Yisrael, but for, for the whole world. I would like you to watch this short video so you have an opportunity to see what I did during my break, not just for you and for the people of the world. But let's just suffice it to say that I am the hero that the world needs, not the one that it deserves. Okay, that was me basically saving Gotham, Gotham City. If you if you only uh, if you're on audio and you didn't get to see it, what can I tell you? You you, you missed something spectacular. That's what I'm going to tell you. Suffice it to say that uh, when I was in LA, I took my kids to Warner Brothers Studios and I made it as a uh, as a business uh, write off because of this video. <laughs> All right, and now we come to the question and answer portion of our program. Benny Malik asks, why did Chazal only give a list of kosher birds and not signs like other animals? Didn't Chazal know that this would lead to an unclear mesora about which birds we can and cannot eat? So, quick uh, word of clarification. Chazal did not give a list of kosher birds that you can eat. The Torah did. The Torah lists 24 birds that are tummy. And it says, you can eat all the birds except for these 24. That means that all the other birds are kosher. As long as you know what those 24 birds are, then you're fine. However, as the Jewish people traveled from Israel, Middle East, to Europe, other places, we weren't sure. Already in the time of the Gemara, it says, you know, there are many different types of ravens. Just to, to say that O-Rave, you have to know what they are. There's so many different types of birds. The Torah decided to give you a list of the birds that you're not allowed to eat, as opposed to telling you what you can eat. Why? The Chazal say, because the Torah lists simanim and names of what's mutter, if that's the smaller amount. So by animals, most animals are not kosher. The Torah gives a list in Dvarim of 10 animals that you can eat. And it gives you simanim. Apparently, um, by fish, there's a minimum amount that are kosher. And therefore, it gave you simanim and said, watch for these things and you can have them. But apparently, most birds are kosher. Just these are not. And so the Torah told you, just stay away from these. 
The problem with the simonim is that the simonim are not absolute. If you look in Shulchan Aruch, they give you some simonim that you can use as a uh, as a guide, but they're not absolute. And so, therefore, unless you know this was one of the Taha animals, you can't eat it. But that Chazal had nothing to do with that. That was the way a Kodesh Baruch Hu decided to set it up. Anonymous asks, "Why would Hashem bring dementia to old people and have them lose their memories?" They seem like they're just not with us here. Who suffers more, us or them? Thank you. P.S. Thank you for all your personal content and jokes, your honesty, and of course, your great Torah content. And I never got an answer to my quest- last question. Does your wife watch or listen to your podcast? Uh, to the last answer, it's not usually. <laughs> Sometimes I watch it over again, and if she's there, she listens to it. But she doesn't, like, go online right away to listen to it. Um, she hears me all the time. And uh, and um, sometimes there's certain shiram that she makes sure to listen to the Tefillah series, which she really – my wife is the intellectual of the family, as I've always pointed out, and she always says how impressed she is of the content uh, of the Tefillah series. And, uh, you know, she feels it's on a very, you know, not only a high Ramah, but also very practical that I, I show how to be able to use it. So, um, but uh, to the podcast, you know, uh, she doesn't make an effort to listen to it. If I happen to be listening to it, she does. As far as dementia goes, uh, I don't know. But if I had to make a suggestion, I would say the following. First of all, a Kodesh Baruch who gives you Tzaras in this world so you won't have it in the next world. And uh, people who are suffering from dementia are still here. They just can't access it. They're still alive. You know, there's a... If you want to read a really scary book, it's called uh, The Living Dead, which was written by a science journalist who describes himself as an atheist about brain death. And he says, it makes no sense, not from a legal point of view, not from a moral point of view, not from a medical point of view. He slugs it all up. And one of the things he refers to is something that's called locked-in syndrome, which when you look at the person, he looks like he's brain dead, but he's still conscious. And, uh, well, they tell stories about where, you know, a person was brain dead, you know, officially for whatever it is, X period of time, then came back. So uh, it's, it's very inexact. And the, he says that the main reason they came up with brain death is because they can't take the heart out of a dead person. So they have to come up with a definition how a living person is dead so they can take their heart out and give it to somebody else. So uh, in general, it's frowned upon to take the heart out of a living person. So we just redefine it like recession. It used to be a recession was two quarters of negative GDP, but it's not anymore. Now a recession is... <laughs> As David Steinberg would have said, if you remember that old uh, old Jewish comic. But anyhow, so um, uh, so that's it. We 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 redefine things. As Humpty Dumpty said in Alice Through the work, Looking Glass, words mean what I want them to mean. Yeah. So uh, um, so very often they're still conscious, even though they can't access it. It's just a form. It's it's a form of suffering in this world that people go through sometimes in order to be able to expiate their suffering. My father suffered from Yenamachla for the last two years of his life, and he suffered terribly, terribly pain. And I remember a good friend of my father, Rabbi Shroit, Rabbi Yaakov Shroit, came to be uh, Menachem Avel, and he brought out a gura. That says that when we get to the next world, so Kosh Baruch Hu judges us. He looks at all of our mitzvahs and he looks at all our Averis. And the Averis are much more. And then the Malachim come and they bring all of your tsaris and all of your Yisurim and all of your suffering and put it on the other side. And that's how everybody gets into Olam Haba. So, uh, so sometimes that's what they need to go through. I heard an explanation once. I don't know what the source is, but I remember hearing it many years ago. On the subject of developmentally disabled kids and people like that who seem like they're totally dependent. You have to be able to give in this world, but you also have to be able to take. 
And there are certain people who refuse to take anything. They don't let anyone help them. They don't do anything. So what I heard is a Baruch Hu allows these people to come back in a completely dependent state. So they can be talking the fact that they never let anybody help them. Because we're supposed to help each other. Hashem created many different types of people, and each one of them is lacking something. So the farmer needs the shoemaker, and the shoemaker needs the blacksmith, and the blacksmith needs the uh, you know the butcher, and everybody needs somebody in order to be able to make it in this world. You're, you weren't meant to be alone. You were meant to work together. So that's what I would think. Rabbi Olavsky, crazy number one, asks, you've mentioned in the past that your parents referred to you as a Yitzlach. Did they do the same to your siblings? If not, why only you? I was unique. <laughs> and I am to this day. Um, I'll give you an example. My father uh, had a florist store, a florist and nursery. All of the brothers went into the store to help. On Sunday, whenever he would take them in, certainly before Mother's Day or Valentine's Day, it was all hands on deck. I didn't. Uh, He used to bring me in on Sunday, and after a while, he asked me to please not come. I I made more trouble than than I helped. So he said to me, stay home and help your mother. There was this image that I was not, you know, all my brothers played sports. Some of them were very good at it. Some of them were good at it, but some of them were very good at it. I never played sports. When I went to camp, they invented a special um, position for me in baseball called deep center field. And I used to walk out there, and, and eventually I sensed the inning was over, and I would walk back, and then I would – sometimes I would just stay there the whole game. I didn't even pay to walk back, you know. They got a pinch hitter. So uh, I, I, I was never sports-oriented. I wasn't uh, coordinated in that way. The gifts that I had, which are – intellectual and communicative and, uh, you know, emotional, was not valued in my family. <laughs> They're a family of doers, uh, accomplishing things. And, uh, and I was not. Plus, I had all these learning disabilities that no one knew back then, the early 60s when I was going to school. No one knew about these things. So I wasn't doing particularly well in school. So the teachers would write down every report card, smart but doesn't try and doesn't understand and doesn't work and doesn't this. They didn't know that I can't hold on to the information because I have no retention or that I can't read because of dyslexia or my mind keeps wandering away because of the ADD. No one knew these things. So basically you got this kid who's kind of dreamy, not very coordinated, not able to handle many things, and also painfully shy. I was painfully shy. I had no friends. Not only did I have no friends, but uh, in elementary school, there's a caste system. There's the really cool kids, and there's their lieutenants, and then there's the people. Anyway, at the bottom level, there were two kids. One guy uh, looked like a pig pen from Peanuts. He was always covered in dust. There was a cloud that went around him. He, his, everything was falling apart. He was dirty and a mess. And the other one was this kid who had this like sort of like pig nose. You know, a little chubby kid, his shirts didn't even cover his belly button. I was under them. (laughs) I was the one that they picked on. That's how far down I was. I was literally at the bottom. Um, In fact, this may not seem very important at this stage in your life, but you know, when you were a little kid, so you wanted to be the first in line when they lined up. So I never got to be first in line, but sometimes I'd be second in line, and the entire class would do frontsies, backsies until I was at the end. So I'm this Nebuch kind of kid who's kind of dreamy, doesn't do particularly well in school. You know what I mean? Um, can't really help out in the business. You know? So the picture was of a kid who basically is never going to make it in life. Now, to be fair, I'm not saying that my parents were wrong. I had a Rosh Hashiva who told one of my bosses once, I can't believe he ever amounted to anything. So my parents had a pretty good idea about who I was. <laughs> And all my other brothers went to the store. They, they, they worked and they, you know, they, they were, you know, accomplished. They had friends. They played sports, you know, and I didn't do any of those things. So uh, that's why they saw me as a person who was never going to make it in life. Okay, uh, one last question. Why K asks, 
I guess he's related to Y2K. <laughs> That's a joke from the year 2000. Anyway, uh, I learned how to drive last year. Very nice. Baruch Hashem, I happen to be a good and responsible driver. Well, I first started driving. I would be really nervous and diving extra hard that morning that when I drove, I would drive safely and not hurt anyone else. I'm generally an anxious person, if you can tell. Now, when I drive, I don't feel so nervous anymore. I daven, but I don't worry about it as much during tefillah. And not worrying makes me worry. Is Hashem going to see my lack of worry as me being too confident in my skills? Instead of believing it's Hashem who keeps me safe no matter how experienced I am. I am at an age where everything is rote in my Judaism. I remember when I was a kid, and I would go to shul. Everything was an adventure. Every yuntif was an adventure. I, I never knew, oh, we're supposed to do this, we're supposed to do that. You know, you forget, you know. And certainly Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Now even Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur is wrote. I, I know what's going to happen. I know how it's going to happen. I got it all down, you know. So, of course, you're a lot more nervous when you don't know what you're doing. My father of Shalom used to say that after you pass your road test, you have to learn how to drive. Because if you're going to continue to drive with your hands at 2 o'clock and 10 o'clock, between 18 and 23 miles an hour, um, checking your mirrors every three seconds, you'll be killed by someone suffering from road rage. You understand? Don't, don't do it. Do not do it. You have to learn how to, how to drive. I had a student uh, when I taught in seminary who she wanted to borrow the car. So he said, first, I have to see you drive on the highway while you put on your makeup. She says, what? So I know you're going to do it. I have to just see if you can do it, uh, if you can actually drive and do it at the same time. So yeah, of course, when you first start out, everybody is artificial. The uh, famous writer William Faulkner was speaking at a writing convention in Columbia University. And he said, how many people here are serious about writing? And everyone raised their hand. And he said, then why aren't you home doing it? Because the way you learn how to write is by writing. People ask me, how do you become a good speaker? Speak. And the more you speak, the more you will become adept at it. Malcolm Gladwell points out in one of his books about the 10,000 hours. It takes 10,000 hours to become proficient at something. And after that, you, you know how to do it. You get it down really good. And that's why he suggests that the people who became the leaders in uh, computer field, uh, Steve Jobs and uh, Bill Gates, it's because they were in a unique position to have more access to the computer than other people. So they were able to do it. And uh, uh, you need that time to be able to develop proficiency. I met a fellow once who was a concert flutist. He became from his learning yeshiva. I said, how come you never play the flute? And he says, if you don't have eight hours a day to practice, it's not worth it. When I was a magician, um, all of the magic professionals told you the same thing. You have to practice for hours and hours and hours before you show a trick. I didn't. I got by my personality. You know, I found it a pretty easy trick to do, and then I made it a lot of fun, and it was very entertaining. And, but I was not a master manipulator, a magician. Uh, um, uh, prestidigitation was not. Uh, I didn't. I didn't have that that gift. But I didn't have to. I was very entertained. I used the magic. So, um, um, so a person needs a lot of time to get good at something. So when you first start driving, it's terrifying. You 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 don't have the experience. The more years of experience you have, the more that you understand how to be able to do it. That's true about everything. It's true about cooking. First time you make a particular dish, it might be uh, difficult. You might have to try to figure it out. After a while, you know more or less how to make it. And yet it doesn't require as much um, you know, nerves or worry to be able to do it because you know how to do it. So when you're first learning how to drive, you were very nervous because you weren't good at it. As you get better, then it becomes everything else in your life that you have to 
generally ask a Kaddish Baruch Hu for help, but just like usually, you know, um, when you, uh, uh, you tie your shoes, I'm sure at some point in your life that was a big challenge. I still don't know how to tie my shoes. You know, I, I was a kid. I just, I told you I wasn't very dexterous, you know. And I was finally in, um, in a hotel camp where we were staying. And the guy showed me to make two bunny rabbit ears and pull them together. But nobody ties their shoes that way. I'm the only one who's still doing it like that because I never learned the other way. So, uh, so okay. But, but now I can more or less tie my shoes. It doesn't really require that much effort, although I do it in my own method. But at the beginning, you ever watch a little kid trying to tie a tie and they keep doing it over and over again because they make it too short. They make this, they make the wrong knot, you know. It takes, it takes, but once you get it down, you don't have to think about it anymore. So there's a difference between when I'm doing something that I don't know how to do. And I, I ask a Kudj Baruch Hu for a general, you know, help me be successful in life. And particularly with this thing that I don't know what I'm doing. And something that you know how to do. And you're just going in the general way of a Kudj Baruch Hu helping you. Okay. Uh, that's it for this week. If you want to find out more about the show, you can go to my website, RabbiAlamski.com, where you can send an email, make a comment, sponsor an episode, um, sign up for any of the online shiurim, and uh, and that's about it for this week. I'm David Olavsky, and this has been the Rabbi Olavsky Show. It's the Rabbi Orlovsky Show. Torah and Simcha, ready to go. It's the Rabbi Orlovsky Show. Knowledge and wisdom will help you grow. Lots of fun in every episode. And we don't have to rhyme. No, we don't. It's the Rabbi Orlovsky Show. On RabbiOrlovsky.com. Torah, anytime. It's Rabbi Orlovsky Show. Torah and Simcha, ready to go. It's the Rabbi Orlovsky Show. Till next time, till we meet again. It's the Rabbi Orlovsky Show. It's the Rabbi Orlovsky Show. It's the Rabbi Orlovsky Show. Rabbi Orlovsky show.